I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. In season one of Slow Mo, uh, one of my absolute favorite guests and a dear, dear person to my heart was Mathieu Ricard, who is known to be the world's happiest man because of a neuroscience experiment that he did that showed that his brain has been reconfigured so drastically because of his 60,000 hours of lifetime meditation that he is actually able to focus and find happiness a lot better than the rest of us. Mathieu is funny, he is kind, he's compassionate. It's definitely an episode that you would want to go back and listen to if you haven't, or maybe re-listen to it if you have the time. My guest today is equally as nice, as kind, as compassionate. He is the neuroscientist that did the study with Mathieu, Dr. Stephen Lorries, who is an award-winning neurologist and neuroscientist, recognized worldwide for that research and his work on consciousness, the neurology of consciousness. He is the head of the GEGA Consciousness Research Unit and Brain Clinic of the University Hospital of Liège in Belgium. He is the professor at the Curvo Brain Center at Laval University in Canada, and he is the founder of the Mind Care International Foundation and the former president of the Association for the Scientific Study of Consciousness. He has published more than 500 scientific articles on the workings of the human brain as it relates to mindfulness and consciousness and other topics. He's a serious advocate of the idea that mindfulness and meditation should be prescribed as part of the medical practice to patients. And finally, he's the author of the international bestseller, The No Nonsense Meditation Book, which is a scientific guide to the power of meditation. He wrote that, of course, in collaboration with Mathieu Ricard, and it was basically an eye-opener for so many of us. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, you know it, meditation, but not really from the practice point of view, but from the how your brain responds to it point of view. I would say before we start, Stephen completely changed my mind about meditation. As a young engineer, I refused to accept that meditation will work the way I want it to work until I actually read his work. And I think his work completely shifted me into the biggest fan, an avid practitioner, and it completely changed my life as a result. So I'm so excited to be spending time today with Dr. Stephen Lorries. Oh, before we start, I would like to tell you that it's been a long time coming, but we are finally on YouTube with full HD video episodes of Slow Mo. I still am recording them on Zoom, but uh, hopefully soon as I start traveling again, might even start to record some of them in person. Uh, we've been investing 
a lot of time and resources into improving this experience for you. And so across the next few weeks, it will improve better and better for your viewing pleasure. Give us feedback, but go check it out. It's on the mogao.official channel on YouTube. So basically youtube.com slash C slash mogao.official. So Stephen, thank you so much, so much for uh, the time that you're spending with me today. Mathieu was a guest here on this podcast. People will know why I'm referring to that in a minute. And he's such a wonderful human being. They say that when Einstein died, they don't, he, he donated his brain for science just so that we understand how it works. And Mathieu, I, I believe, is the other one that deserves to study his brain and you studied it when he's alive. So for those of you listening, if you haven't heard my conversation with Mathieu Ricard is what it was in uh, season one. He's the funniest, kindest, most enlightened person I know. So definitely don't miss it and go listen back to it. But today we're going to continue on the neuroscience part of this conversation. And my guest today, Stephen, is at the forefront of this. So Stephen, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Time. Thank you for having me. I'll start with the question that I'm sure you were asked a million times when you were studying neuroscience. Why would a neuroscientist write about meditation or study meditation? Don't you have better things to do? Uh, well, it's uh, indeed an important question. I never, ever thought I would have a discussion or write a book about meditation. And as often is the case, uh, Mo, it was because of a personal crisis that's the details are in, in the book. Ooh, okay. So 2012, I had a, a difficult time. I was uh, suddenly alone with the three young kids. So painful separation. And what do you do? You have that little voice in your head spinning and spinning. And I uh, started to do yoga. But then it was indeed the meeting with uh, Mathieu Ricard in Paris at the TEDx, where he came um, to sh share his knowledge about meditation. And I was there to give a talk about consciousness and the brain. That's my job mm -hmm. as a neurologist, what we study now for over 25 years. And so we became friends. He invited me for a retreat. And then I invited him as a guinea pig. And so <laughs> that, that was the beginning. <laughs> okay, I've never, I've never, you know, assumed that he would be, but I think in that experiment, he must have been the guinea pig. It's like li little, little chair, sit here, we're going to attach all of those things to your, to your mind. So I'm sorry I laughed, but it's such an interesting description of him. Yeah, he was, he was great in that role because uh, Mathieu Ricard, first of all, is a, a scientist. He has a PhD from yes. Institut Pasteur and then made a career within, within Buddhism. He's now a translator of the Dalai Lama. Very inspiring, as you mentioned, wonderful books. But it was great to have that dialogue, to, to discuss together. Um, and you said, why should a neuroscientist kind of waste his time writing and, and, uh, looking at meditation? Uh, well, I regret I didn't do it earlier because yes. with the team, we studied the damaged brain. I, I founded the Coma Science Group and, and then now direct a, a unit, which is the Giga Consciousness Research Unit. It's all trying to understand human consciousness, one of the biggest mysteries. So it's kind of obvious that one should look at meditation because that's the art of appreciating what's going on between our ears and, and, and um, 
contemplative practices, I think for me were a discovery. And um, yeah, I should have paid attention many years ago. Uh, so, but in my case, it was um, 2012, the, the painful separation and then the personal journey where I think I changed. My science changed. So now we, with the team, use these brain scans to, to not just look at Buddhist monks, but also anyone uh, and the study of the power of the mind. And then as a clinician, I now prescribe meditation. So it was Do a, you, it was a yes. big mm. game changer. Yeah. I want to dive deep, of course, into all of the details, but can I ask you a bit of a philosophical question? Do, do you believe that we all have to go through that tough separation? We all have to go through that difficult journey to start doing what we're supposed to be doing in the world? I don't think we need to. I think currently it it seems to be the case. It's what I see as a caregiver. Many of the patients, when I talk about meditation and, you know, they go on that personal journey, they, they say, well, doctor, it's a pity. You know, I, I why did I wait till my mm. tension headaches or insomnia or anxiety, burnout, whatever? So... In the book and, and also through, you know, interviews like this and um, meetings with politicians, I try to put meditation, the um, educational program, because I don't think it's normal that we need to hit the wall before we pay attention to our mental well-being. And that is also um, because as a neurologist working in intensive care and, and treating the damaged brain, not only after traumatic brain injury, but also seeing many young people who try to commit suicide. And, and I think it's extremely sad. And we need to do more than just have a phone line to offer help when, when they are about to commit suicide. Why is it that in our modern society we have, one could say, everything we need and smartphones and, and internet and yet we are not necessarily happy and, and also your book it's it's about mm -hmm. the challenge to um, l'art de vivre eh? the, 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 the mm -hmm. art of living and, and mm -hmm. finding one's path so I agree and it's my personal experience that it's often when when we crash that we discover meditation and I think we should invest way more in prevention. And you're also an expert, of course, in, in computers, artificial intelligence, and, you know, we now invest in virtual reality, metaverse, and we work also with these technologies, of course, in the lab, and they're very useful. But I think we should reconnect with what makes us different from these machines. They, they have no feelings. They, they know no motivation, frustration, and creativity where we still, I think, emphasize way too much uh, just knowledge and not the subjective feeling, experience. How do I feel right now? How do you feel? How can we relate? Connect on that, yeah. So that's why... I was very happy to write the book and share that, that message. You know, you just triggered a very interesting thought in me. One thing that is true about today's machines is that they won't stop because of pity for you. You know what I mean? It's like if you're swiping on Instagram, this, the Instagram machine will have no feelings of remorse for having kept you there for the last six hours. And, and it's quite interesting that by us dealing with 
those machines that way. We're turning into machines ourselves. It's it's such an eye-opening statement when you said it. It just hit my heart, really. It's almost like being chained to a treadmill and the treadmill has a motor in it and it's just constantly, constantly driving us. Uh, sadly. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think, so if we, because I now speak to you more from, from Canada, I'm Belgian. Where in Canada? Quebec. Great idea. Thank you. Yes. Montreal. Are you in Montreal? It's Quebec City, actually, uh, which is oh, even smaller than, than Montreal. Yeah. And it was a very conscious choice also to reconnect with nature. I look oh, out beautiful. the window right now. I see the, the Saint Laurent River. There's the woods. Oh, there's beautiful. an invitation to, you know, slow down and, and reconnect. Mm. Uh, so mm. with the whole family, we enjoy that very much. So you're absolutely right. We don't want to become robots or as a caregiver, again, the challenge for me is, is to use these technologies. And I'm very happy, of course, that, that we have that knowledge. You know, we developed vaccines and antibiotics and drugs that um, help us when there's also mental challenges. But in that process, um, if I compare again here in, in Canada with, with traditions that are millennia old, we maybe forgot that power of the mind and, and, and we are quite passive. As a medical doctor, I prescribe pills and interventions and, and that's what also patients are expecting. So now when I prescribe meditation, they're a bit surprised, you know, because it, yes. it gives them something to do. <laughs> and that is now my mission to see this, to build a bridge between classical medicine. I don't, don't like the term alternative medicine because I really think it's, it's complementary. And I think, and we now have studies where cancer survivors are invited to use meditation and mindfulness, but also other techniques uh, like hypnosis. Um, and, and that empowers patients. So, so you can play a more active role. And, and, and really, this for me is the challenge to take the best of both worlds, including technology. I mean, we're not going back. Internet is yeah. there and the screens are there. Uh, but the challenge is to make good use of it and 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 absolutely um like you said i spent way too much time behind the screen and it's it's not taking into account my emotional needs uh yeah. it just wants human me to, needs yeah human needs it wants me to keep looking and the algorithms are designed for that and i think we can and should do otherwise and and so that's i think also with COVID, very clear, um, it's not only technology. I mean, we are social beings with needs and we will not find that just in the metaverse. So, um, I, yeah, I mean, I make a, a very clear statement here for everyone listening. I'm not joining the metaverse because I think we have a choice. And I think as we continue to have that fear of missing out and trying to just always follow whatever new technology is given to us, we're basically empowering those technologies. If we all say, look, you know, this, no, I love in person, I love face to face, I love to connect with humans as a human, and I'm not going to be turned into a virtual bit on a screen that is interacting with other virtual bits on screens. I think if we make that choice, I think uh, companies will develop something that we actually need. I want to go into, first of all, best book title ever. Okay. 
It was the, not mine. <laughs> is it, was it, no, it was, okay. no, it was the, the publisher who came up with the no-nonsense meditation book. I actually thought of it that like a publisher choice because publishers are like, you know what, we want to sell that book. So we're going to say something that makes it very clear. The book assumes there are lots of nonsense meditation books, the title, basically, <laughs> which I don't know. I, it's not what you meant, I'm sure. but uh... Exactly right. So, so I initially said, well, is this a good choice? But you know how it goes. So here yeah. we are with the no-nonsense meditation book. And in a sense, it's okay because I'm a scientist. So it's, it's really this <laughs> it's a no rational, evidence-based, yeah. Yeah. yeah, skeptic. And, and so I come, you know, long journey for me. Mm-hmm. And so I followed their suggestion about the title. <laughs> yeah, as if you had a choice, Stephen. <laughs> the illusion of free will. Exactly. I've, I've been with publishers. I mean, my publishers are amazing, actually. Most of the time we agree on those things. But before we go to the book, I think for the sake of the listeners that may not know of the impact you had on the topic, because if you don't know the work of Stephen and Mathieu on the idea of relating the meditation to new neuroscience. It was groundbreaking for me, for sure. You know, when that came out, first of all, an understanding of neuroplasticity over the long term settled in. The idea that, oh my God, I can actually change my brain. I can make a difference. And if I can change my brain, then one of the best methods I can do is to change it through meditation, through consistent meditation. And I think maybe some of our listeners have not heard of this story. So tell me a little bit about when Mathieu came to your lab as a guinea pig, <laughs> what, what did you do to him? And what did you present to the world as a result? So poor Mathieu Ricard, he came 2015. Um, mm. So that was after we, we spent yes. uh, time on that retreat. And for me and the team in, in Liège, Belgium, it was a unique opportunity to, to really see what, in his case, 60,000 hours of meditation do with your yes. brain yeah. cells, the gray matter, uh, but also the, the connections. So both we studied with MRI, uh, powerful brain imaging techniques, and next we invited him also to meditate in these machines with uh, functional MRI, looking at the changes depending on basically the exercise he was doing. Also with high-density EEG, you see here next to me this um, uh, bunch of electrodes where we now can um, record electrical activity and the signature of the different meditation Types. We put him Mo in the positron emission tomography scanner. That's a machine that permits us to visualize um, the brain's energy use because it uses more than any other organ energy. So radioactively uh, labeled glucose was injected in uh, poor Mathieu uh, <laughs> veins, and we had images of uh, how his brain of a seventy plus. Uh, uh, works. And so from all of that, I can share with you that his brain, neurologically speaking, is 10, 15 years younger. So yes, it has an impact. And that was, of course, incredible for us to, to work with him. We published also a new test, very technical, but we used 
um, a very strong magnet. It's called transcranial magnetic stimulation. And so we, we see um, the brain, the gray matter, and then we hit specific parts and simultaneously record the electrical activity, which is something actually we developed for coma patients. So it gives us a measure of the capacity for consciousness. Um, and that measure, we have hundreds of volunteers. You can't change it. It's like the doctor taking your um, knee jerk reflex, you know, with the little hammer. It's just there. It gives us a number. And we need to anesthetize your brain for that number to change. Um, mm. But here for the very first time, we had... Um, Mathieu, when he was meditating, who could um, directly influence our measures one way or the other. And that was really never, never seen. So um, very impressive illustration of the power of the mind. Um, and that for us opened a new line of, of research projects. And of course, we didn't limit ourselves to Buddhist monks like himself. And in the book, I summarize the, the past 20 years of research. It's when you and I, we start to meditate already after eight weeks, we would also see these um, visible um, effects with, with the brain scan uh, machine. So that's, of course, a message because our lives are very different from that mm. of Mathieu or the Dalai Lama, uh, for that matter. So let's try to rephrase this for the layman like me. So massive power over his mind. He's able to slow it down, to calm it down, to change its actual behavior almost on demand. But yes, you're right. 60,000 lifetime hours of meditation. So I think if I actually meditate from now until the day I go, I wouldn't be able to do 60,000 hours, but we have different lives, right? We, we could not do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually when we were chatting here on slow-mo, it's almost ingrained with him. So he he would talk about how when he would, uh, who was at Davos, for example, he would be dying to go back to his hermitage in the middle of nowhere and spend 40, 50 days alone. The simplicity of no warm water, no real luxuries of life in which in any way, but it pays back in terms of that incredible power to control the mind really not really control it but to not even need to control it anymore because the mind is behaving in ways that are reconfigured and very different but let's put those in layman's terms so what is Mathieu able to do that we're not able to do well I would say nothing actually we can also learn that right it's it's mental mm. gymnastics and and we could all give it a try of course, he's, he's an athlete of the mind and, and he has this <laughs> Buddhist tradition where he has these retreats, as you mentioned. And for me, the challenge is to learn from those top athletes, but then translate it to our needs and, and also being very pragmatic. How can we do that when there's so many other things we need to do. Um, and, and my mm. wife, who's a psychologist and also giving mindfulness for, for kids, um, when Mathieu comes, he, he, he stays at our place. And so we've got five kids more. So it's in the morning, it's just chaos. <laughs> no meditation. <right? laughs> no meditation. Exactly, exactly. I can just say in the morning, listen, you know, uh, Vanessa, I'm just going to sit on my uh, meditation cushion for 20 minutes and, and you take care of the rest. 
rest, it, it would not work, right? So I think, yes, we can learn from these monks, the different, basically three big families, right? Of, of Meditation is about focusing your attention. So he did classical breathing meditation. So you're just doing one thing that's focusing attention on your breathing. And that permits you to have some control of the monkey mind, right? The thoughts, the continuous stream of conscious thoughts jumping from one to the other. Um, and you just let these thoughts pass by. You, you don't attach to, to any of them. Um, bring the attention back to the, the, the focus of attention, the breathing. Then we did other exercises with him where he would be in, in um, open awareness, you know, focusing on what's coming in through my senses right now. I look at you, I listen, the, the, the details of everything coming in through our senses. So we can also do that during a mindful walk, for example. That's another way, and another network, by the way. So the external oh, awareness network. Mm. So, so the, the, the third exercise and network is, is the emotional um, part where you can use meditation to reconnect with your um, emotional feelings. I'm not a Buddhist monk, uh, not a Zen master, but I sometimes can indeed give me a moment when things are with the kids and my wife and the job and, you know, the academic world can be very, very intense. Just, again, pay attention to how I feel and if I just, the first step is the most challenging. It's just to observe, okay, I now have this feeling of anger, sadness, whatever. And when you do that, you already feel less of the anger, the sadness. And mm. you can reconnect with your own emotional weather map. It's not always sunny. Sometimes it rains and, and that's okay. But then also with, with the needs of the other and train empathy, compassion, which is Matthew's favorite. So that is exactly what we saw. It's when he's doing and the other monks, these exercises focusing on the breathing, focusing on the senses, focusing on emotion and loving kindness, we would really see the different networks in the brain activating and that's also what what the studies show when when we start doing these uh, these practices and i think it's very very powerful and the clinical trials more show that the effects can be as big as what we see in pharmaceutical trials with painkillers anxiolytics antidepressants so so this is real this is backed up by science and i think not enough used by, by colleagues and in my profession as a medical doctor. So I really think there is something complementary there in addition to the drugs and the, the interventions that are very useful, but maybe reduce us to some passive receiver undergoing things. And, and there's a lot more we can do. And meditation is one of those things, in addition to, you know, taking care of your physical well-being and your social, the quality of your social relationships and your sleep and what you eat and so on and so forth. But I think it's important to tell that message that, that this is really backed up by science and is now being translated to the clinic. And, and that for me was really a discovery. 
Is there scientific evidence of the power of the mind over our physical well-being, like actual studies that say you can cure something or you can actually change something in you physically? Definitely. I mentioned that Mathieu Ricard, uh, 70 plus, his brain is 10, 15 years younger. And we now have clinical trials that show that you can have an impact on normal aging. So when I said we, we looked at PET imaging and glucose uptake, which is what we call metabolic activity of the brain, after... I know your age, Mo, so I should be careful. But after oh, 40, oh, oh. <laughs> um, it's no longer increasing, right? So actually, metabolic activity of the brain goes down when we age. And that's normal, I mean. And maybe we should pay a bit more attention because we are worried that we get rimples and we Botox and we have all these things about the facade. But what's happening inside maybe is, is even more important. And meditation has been shown to impact really as measured by these brain PET scans, the brain's glucose consumption. There's even now ongoing a multicentric trial where it is proposed to people at risk for degenerative dementia. And, wow. and my center in Liège is, is part of that. And the first results are promising. And as you mentioned, this is not a vaccine against Alzheimer's. This is not a cure. We have no cure for these terrible diseases. The drugs can't do it either, but it empowers patients and it is complementary to the, the classical treatment. So yes, there are really visible and I think very, very important effects on, on the brain and the rest of the body. I mean, when you do meditation, and maybe we should invite, because we're talking about something, actually meditation is meditating. So mm. Mo, maybe we should invite everyone watching and listening to this podcast to just give it a try because then absolutely people will experience it for themselves you agree absolutely as a matter of fact Stephen, i i agree because of your work so I'll, I'll tell you openly before we we take some moments for that the reality is because of my engineer's brain for a very long time I sort of rejected the idea of like, yeah, I, I can see that it makes a difference to a mature car, but he's doing a lifetime of this. Does it make any difference to me? And I think your studies and the idea that even eight weeks of meditation have an impact through neuroplasticity on your brain and they change the configuration of your brain. I'll tell you openly, I'm the biggest advocate today saying consistency more than length, by the way, in my view, like don't miss a day if you can, but make it a little longer every day if you can. But massive difference. It makes a massive difference. As you rightly said, I'm aging, so I'm now 28, but I feel 24 because, <laughs> because I meditate. So. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. Good for <laughs> there you. you go. There you go. Thank you for that, Mo. It's, it's something I often hear from, from engineers, you know, Cartesian brains, if I can't measure it, it doesn't exist and I want to see proof yep. and so on and so forth. So if a neurologist, a brain scientist like myself tells this story, they're more inclined to say, okay, okay, uh, let's, yep. let's maybe... The machine works that way. Absolutely. Yeah, we have, uh, I think, meditation and, and you know, it, it came in the, the 60s, 70s and, and Beatles, drugs, a lot of... Yeah, we have 
preconceived ideas about meditation, mindfulness, and and maybe that's that's a pity. It's not a religion. It's not something esoteric. It's not. I believe it or I don't. It's just evidence-based. And it's too important to, uh, well, ignore our mental well-being. So the exercise, if, if you agree, Mo, and everyone mm-hmm. with Let's us, do it. Yeah. will just take, sit comfortably, and we will go for the, the basic exercise, which is doing one thing, focusing attention to the breathing. And when we do that together, we, the brain can't help it, might have thoughts popping up or perceptions or emotions. And then the exercise is to notice that, okay? And then bring the attention back to the anchor of the breathing again and again and again. So we can put both feet on the ground, our hands, we can put them comfortably on our legs and we sit straight and comfortably and close the eyes and we would together inhale through the nose that's great and exhale through the mouth doing great here so in through the nose And we're going to exhale a little bit longer. We'll do three more. It can help to count. So one. Out. That's wonderful. Two. bit longer out last one and all right we open the eyes reconnect with here and now very brief simple but powerful so i don't know how it felt for you it's always feels amazing i mean by the way this is the first podcast where we have a neuroscientist help you meditate okay pleasure it feels amazing and and i need to ask you about that because when i actually really get into that single task approach. So focus on one thing, whether that's, I normally actually don't focus on my breathing. I normally, I know it sounds really bad, but I normally wet my finger and wet the tip of my nose and meditate on that itch. And it is incredibly empowering because you just zoom in. You know, when your nose itches, you, you actually cannot focus on anything else. Your brain has no other thoughts other than, oh my God, this is killing me, right? But it works incredible. And then when you get to that point where your brain is literally focused on one thing, I almost honestly feel that it's as if I was carrying a big load and I put it down. 
I almost feel like my brain relaxed. Is, is that actually what happens? Absolutely. I think we try to multitask very often, right? And we are doing one thing, being for the job, work on a project or behind the screen or when we're with friends or the kids. Uh, but studies show, and it's the case for me, that at the same time, we're doing other stuff mentally. And, and, mm. and uh, then we now have all these machines distracting us, notifications and a message. And, um, and, and the brain uh, can't multitask, really. It can just be conscious of one, two things. And so giving you the opportunity to do one thing, um, attention, that's the key word, being on your itchy nose <laughs> or your breathing or a mantra, you know, you now mm. with the book, I got a lot of also um, uh, religious readers being from, from, um, you know, our Judeo Christian tradition or whatever. Praying is also very powerful. You're repeating yeah. a mantra and you have transcendental meditation. It's really specifically having a, a word or a couple of words. Um, but it's all this same strategy, right? You, you just focus and, and it gives you control. And as you say, it, 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 it feels well. Um, the breathing has uh, another uh, component to it because... When you exhale, you stimulate your parasympathetic nervous system. So, you know, you have these two, the break, which is, I feel comfortable and secure. I, I just had dinner and then there's this part of the autonomic nervous system, autonomic because we thought it was with beyond our conscious control, but actually we can influence it. And meditation is one way to do it. And then the gas pedal is the autosympathetic system. It's when I'm confronted with a wild animal, which rarely happens, but it's more being stressed because I'm in the car and, and with one or the other driver and, <laughs> yeah. and, and a human animal that drives me crazy and makes only things worse, of course. Uh -huh. and, and so then my heart beat goes up and blood pressure and stress hormones. And so when you breathe out, you would do the opposite and stimulate the parasympathetic system and your heart goes beating a little bit slower. And that's what the studies also show in terms of the stress response. And that is, that is very useful because chronic stress is not good. We also saw with the brain scans and now with COVID, which was clearly a stressor, it, it really has a measurable effect, a measurable effect on structures like the hippocampus. So this mm. part of the brain that's important also for memory really shrinks, becomes smaller when we measure it, but it is reversible. So studies show if, if rumination can make it worse, meditation can heal it. And so I think that's very powerful. And whatever your favorite exercise or technique is, that is for each and every person to kind of discover. It's, of course, easier to take a pill than to go to that, through that personal uh, journey. That's in the book. I give a number of examples of exercises, but that's like in the sushi bar. You, you try it, you like it, you take more. If not, maybe it will be useful later. But so this, I think, is, is something maybe we don't do enough, right? So, so to just yeah. grant us the time to, to 
train the focus of our attention and it helps with so many things. It's, it's not just um, to better concentrate and be less distracted. It helps us dealing differently with stress. It promotes creativity. It helps us sleep better. But we also have the exercises, um, as you discussed with Mathieu, to train our empathy and compassion and try to become better human beings, which is terribly mm. important, right, in, in, mm. in this world. Mm. So I think it's, it's obvious that we can no longer just ignore this. And, and it's a bit strange that in schools we, we have a... a gymnastics teacher right yes and it's part yeah, of the to grow your muscles <laughs> exactly very important but why don't we do the same for our mental well-being i mean there's yeah, wonderful initiatives but but nothing really structurally there that that is part of the curriculum and i think we need to do that and we discussed yeah. you know computers and how our brains are different from computers so it's obvious that that this need is just um so big that we should pay attention to uh, what's going on there. That's so clear when you think about it. Like you should have PE, physical exercise, and ME, mental exercise or mind exercise, right? I mean, it's, it's actually, it's, um, sometimes you wonder how we ended up in this place, our world being so focused on the wrong things. I have to zoom in on a sentence you said right now, when you described that the hippocampus would actually shrink. So I think this is very important for our listeners to understand, those who haven't studied or really were interested in neuroscience. It's, it's not that you're learning a skill. Your brain, the part of your brain capable of doing that skill actually disappears if you don't practice it. And if you, you said it's reversible. So if you practice it enough, the part of your brain, it's actual number of cells dedicated to this task comes back. Can you tell us a bit about this? Yeah, this is the whole field of neuroplasticity. Uh, when I was at university in the 80s, we were still told, you know, you have a number of brain cells and then you basically yeah. just lose them. And now we see the brain as something very dynamic. Also people listening to this and who will hopefully remember something from it. Well, it will change the thousands of billions of brain connections. Mm. So that is exactly what we saw. By the way, for those who have the video, this is Mo, the brain of our friend Mathieu Ricard. Okay, oh, so send we it. put him. <laughs> send it. Over. I want this. <laughs> I can send it digitally. I'll, so. I'll, stu I'll study every square inch of it. By the way, for all of you listening, we're now starting to be on YouTube. So if, if you're interested to also watch the video, you'll find it on uh, youtube.com slash C for channel and then slash Official. That's the, the channel where we have all of the my content as well as slow-mo. Sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead, Stephen, as you hold that dear gem of Mathieu. Yes, brain. of Mathieu Ricard's brain, now on YouTube, 3D print of his gray matter, those billions of brain cells. And so we measured this up, compared it to other people his age, and showed that overall there is more gray more matter, mass. more brain cells. And more specifically oh, wow. in the book, you will see the parts that are the most developed. And it's no surprise. It's here inside, in the front, in the middle, is what we call the anterior cingulate cortex. That's like the uh, director of the uh, yeah. orchestra, you know, focusing our attention. And, and that's what we know from neuroscience. And this part of the brain really is bigger. That would 
many, many studies have shown. Another part we mentioned already is the hippocampus, important for memory. Then we have the insula, which is deep yes. inside here, a structure important to focus attention to signals coming from within, which is what you cultivate. And then finally, the emotional exercises and, and loving kindness, empathy, compassion. There's this left prefrontal area developed in, in people like Mathieu. Uh, some called him the most happy person on earth. Mm. And especially the connections from this part with amygdala and other parts of the uh, emotional brain. So that's the visible effects on the brain's gray matter. For those who watch this, check it out. I'm holding it in my hand right now. I was just going to say that this is very, very, very profound. This is not us saying, hey, you're going to meditate and then you're going to get better at it. You're going to meditate and your brain is going to grow differently because of it. You're going to have more of the matter that you need and less of the matter that you don't. Actually, does that also prove to be true, Stephen? So parts of the brain, like, for example, the amygdala, let's say, I'm, I'm just assuming, where you sense threats and so on, would they shrink a little uh, because you're... Yes, yes, mm -hmm. yes. So we really see that, that the brain is changing all the time. And that's, mm. of course, what we've been studying in, in cases of traumatic brain injury and bleeding. And, you know, with the coma science group, we see a lot of very challenging conditions where plasticity is important for recovery, but we also see it during learning and the effects of, of meditation. Also sleep is, is important there. There's a lot that happens during the night mm. in terms of the, mm. the, the brain's plasticity. And, and what we just discussed here, these changes, some parts growing bigger, others becoming less thick. Prominent. Yeah. It's actually because of the connections, because the power of your brain, it's not those just one neuron can do not much, but it talks, it's connected to tens of thousands of other neurons. So this is another part of Mathieu's brain. So check this out. This is, you see the fragility. This is the white matter. So these are the thousands of billions of brain connections, the 3D print wow. of what we, with diffusion MRI. So we can now look at kind of the big high roads connections, for example, between Mathieu's left and right part of the brain. And so studies have shown, and we have observed that the connections through what we call the corpus callosum. So this is a big fiber bundle making sure that both parts of our brain are interacting. And we've seen that this increases when you meditate. We've seen it in the monks, but again, no need to become a monk. I think the big message of the book, and you mentioned already the importance to try to make this into a habit, to try and do it every day, not always easy. And so we can have the retreats and the formal exercises. I personally, I'm convinced, and also the studies show that informal meditation. For me, the big challenge, Mo, is what do I do when I come back from the retreat? What do I do when after 10, 20, whatever minutes on my meditation cushion the rest of the day, right? When all these yeah. things are happening and thrown into my face, how do I react in a more conscious, in a more compassionate way? And so there I think we can... After a while, when we went through these exercises, this becomes part of 
the way we, we, we live and the way we interact with others at work, within the family. And that's what you mentioned when you had Mathieu. He's doing that the whole time. Yeah. And so that for me is, is the challenge to try and find how can I do this depending on my needs, also my possibilities. I mean, you're a, a young mother, father, or you're in, working hard for your career, or you're an elderly a student. Things are different in terms of the needs, but also the practical possibilities. And so I'm convinced that for each and every one, there is a way to pay attention to your mental well-being and to cultivate the things we just discuss and, and find your favorite uh, exercise. I mean, if I can do it, I think anyone can do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's very kind of you to say. It's actually really interesting. Once again, you drew my attention. I mean, so I, of course, I've, I've become very good friends with many. I mean, Mathieu is one, and Ajahn Brahm, or uh, Galen Tipton, uh, Dr. Tipton Jimpa, and so on. Wonderful, wonderful human beings. And one of the most interesting, I, even the, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama himself, I, I spent wonderful time with him. And there is actually that incredible presence to them. You know, when you're with them, it's almost as if they're meditating on you. They're paying attention to absolutely nothing else. And it's so interesting because it's wonderful to start. I mean, I think this is why they're so loved around the world because you're in the presence of His Holiness and it's just overwhelming. The kindness that is emitting from him, you feel like you're the only one in the world that matters, which obviously is not true, but he manages to make you feel that way, right? And, and I think that idea is basically them extending their focused attention beyond the meditation cushion to every action that they take. And I think in my next book, That Little Voice in Your Head, I talk a lot about what I call meditation in the modern world. The idea of it's not enough, 20 minutes is not enough a day. If you really want to have structural changes that last or overpower what you hear on the news, which is also working actively to create networks in your brain, you have to be present paying deliberate attention, as I call it, in other instances of your day. Absolutely. And I so often fail in this, right? I, I would go with the kids in the woods and, and I'm not really there with them. Very often I would be on my phone mm. or I would send a message or even if I'm not on my phone or any other screen, in my mind, I'm elsewhere. And so, as you said, when you are with the Dalai Lama or these Buddhist monks, they're really doing this one thing, that's this human interaction, and we can learn from that and translate it to our realities. And you should ask my wife and, and, and the kids. I, I think <laughs> I made some progress, but it's, it's really possible. I mean, we brush our teeth every day, and, and we do a lot of things in the house now in a different way, right? So when we would cook, we would just do that and, and not try to optimize and multitask. And no. And, and then sometimes I had the impression I'm just losing my time here. I don't have time for that. You know, I got that and that and my, but actually, and the studies again show if you truly monotask and you give yourself time for one thing at a time, the task will be better managed and you will, you will do a better job. And so in the end, you even save time. So, so for I me, this was really a, a paradigm changer and I, I had wonderful retreats, but again, they end and then what do I do? And so I truly believe and I invite each and every one to maybe be kind to yourself, 
sometimes, as I said, in the morning, it's just chaos. I, I don't have the 20 minutes, but there is not a day where I would not meditate in one way or another. So the exercise we just did, I do it in the hospital, being confronted with families who have these biggest dramas from one day to the other. They, they lost their kid and traumatic brain injury and, and intensive care rehab. So I just, and the most challenging for me is the first one. If I do that between two consultations, this for me works. It, it, it really permits me to take on the next family and the next challenges and to really mm -hmm. be there for them. Mm -hmm. Mm. And the same with the people who matter at home and what we do and, and why we do it. I mean, these big ethical challenges, the, the climate is, is warming up. And, and again, the young people are the ones who are pointing to the uh, necessity to take action. And sometimes we are just caring about the pseudo emergencies. And so to just sit and think about what really matters and nature, as mentioned, really invites us to do so. So I think we will not find it as set in the metaverse. It's out there. It's, <laughs> it's for free. And in Canada, by the way, I can now prescribe a walk in one of the natural parks. So no this way. is wonderful. It's again, yeah. it's backed up by science. Go for a walk. This will not, of course, replace whatever treatment you take, but It, but it will it improve it. It's will additive. improve it's it. Will, it yeah. will help you. So yeah, I mean, I do that. Believe it or not. So I walk. I live on the Palm Island in Dubai during winters, and for some reason, Dubai being as intense as it is as a city, after 7 p.m., there is not a human being on the beach. I don't know. I don't understand why. I mean, literally, I walk after 7 p.m. and I own the whole beach. It is quiet. It's wonderful. I don't have my phone with me. I don't have music. I don't have headphones. Basically, I just have a chance to slow down and to just reclaim my sanity, if you want. I think, I think people don't understand how that actually makes you more productive. I want to close with one, one silly question, if I may. So we're talking about the no-nonsense meditation book. Is there nonsense meditation? Are there common mistakes that people make when they meditate? Are there things that we shouldn't do? Well, as always, I think if, if you have a, a medical issue, go and, and talk to your doctor, right? It's like if you have a toothache, go see your dentist. There have been problems and malpractices with gurus, with people who, when you're vulnerable, you, you should be sure to be in, in good hands and go seek a healthcare professional when you have a medical mm. or a healthcare problem. And then there's all the misconceptions that we think meditation, you know, is, is not for us because we can't sit still because it just thinking too much or it's religion or it's sitting in origami, lotus, where, <laughs> you know, there's so many ways to do this that, yes, I wanted to summarize the scientific evidence, and that's no nonsense. The clinical translation, stress is a big problem, I would say. And, and in my clinical practice, there is barely any symptom that is not made worse by stress. And very often it would become a negative spiral, right? People don't sleep well, so they're more stressed, and the stress makes them more sleepful, and so on and so forth. That's 
why I think it's useful to say, okay, this is just common sense, right? This is so important. There are visible effects on the brain, the body, you mentioned the stress response. Actually, we even see it at the level of your chromosomes. As you know, you have these telomeres. This is like the little caps that protect our DNA. And it's been repeatedly shown that when we have ruminations and chronic stress, this process that we see during aging where these telomeres, these caps become smaller and hence our genetic material is more at risk for a number of diseases, including cancer. Well, again, meditation, one way has been shown repeatedly to reverse that process. And, and I think that's very, very incredible that even at the level of your genes, there is a visible effect. And, and so yeah. sometimes, again, patients would tell me, well, you know, I've got this anxiety problem or whatever, a panic attack, but you know, it's my mom had it, my aunt, and it's in the family, it's in my genes can't do nothing mm. about it. Well, even there, the whole field of um, perigenetics, yeah. epigenetics, it's, it's how your genes express themselves depends on our environment, even our psychology. So we can, and I think we should do something about what's going on in our mind. We spend a lot of time in our mind and thoughts, so we better make it a nice place. Oh, I cannot end on a better sentence. I mean, You've heard this. This is the no-nonsense view of it. So do yourself a favor, honestly, and be kind to yourself. Start with a simple meditation. Stephen, we did what, a minute? Maybe four breaths, really, five breaths. Start with that. Don't miss a day. Please don't miss a day. And then add, add a minute every day. When you've reached 10 minutes a day, I think you're in a good place. When you've reached 20, you're reversing your aging. You are capable of doing better things with your brain because you're reconfiguring it differently. You're really doing yourself the biggest favor ever. You know, if you've ever looked at someone who's been uh, staying fit by going to the gym and eating healthy and saying, you know, I wish I was like that person. I think the one to compare yourself to is the one that actually took good care of their mind uh, in terms of their focus, their ability, their compassion, their vital systems, if you want, that make us better humans. I can't thank you enough, Stephen. This was truly a no-nonsense conversation, but so wonderful in every possible way. So kind, so calm, so slow, like slow-mo, which I absolutely, absolutely admired. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Take good care of yourself. I am taking good care of me for all of you listening. Take good care of yourselves. And I could not recommend uh, Stephen's book more, the No Nonsense Meditation book. I think all of us believe in meditation somehow, but this, is, this solidifies it. This basically tells you, here's the truth about what we know about meditation. This is scientifically studied. It's full of exercises. I cannot recommend it enough. I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll find it useful. And as I always say, regardless of how busy your day is, please find a tiny bit of the time to slow down. And when you're slowing down, just five breaths, 10 breaths will change your entire life. I cannot thank you enough for the alibi that you give me to speak to such wonderful human beings. I mean, this man changed my life and I'm now talking to him because of you listening to slow-mo. So keep listening to slow-mo. Check us out on video on YouTube if you want to on youtube.com slash C slash official. And I love you all for watching and listening and I will see you next time.